just going to say a few words before I read the text. We're in this wonderful series through the Gospel of Matthew in which we are looking at the way that Jesus brings restoration. You know, when the disciples preached in Acts 3, they called people to repentance and they said, Jesus, he must remain in heaven until the time comes for him to restore all things. And then Jesus himself, when he appeared to John in Revelation, he said, look or behold, I'm making all things new. So this is the big theme of the kingdom of God that through Jesus is breaking into the earth. He's bringing restoration. It's not just a future hope. It's a now work that he's doing. And he's doing it through his church. We won't accomplish it all. He will bring it in its fullness. But he's longing to work through his body now to bring restoration. And so we're following through the gospel. We're watching what are you doing to restore? How are you restoring? And this morning we're going to have uh, a message that I think many of us wouldn't at first glance say this is restoration. We're going to look at hard conversations, maybe disciplined conversations, conflict. But we're going to talk about how Jesus restores through conflict. And as I prepared this message, I thought, you know, this is something that I think a lot of us have questions about. How does this get outworked? So I've prepared a little shorter message for me, uh, shorter. And my goal is to maybe speak for 20, 25 minutes. And then I want to create a little space for us to have some questions and conversation. So I'm sharing that with you up front so that you can think, okay, if I've got a situation or a question that I think it would be valuable, not just for me, but for others to hear about, I'm going to be bold. I'm going to ask that. And uh, I'll actually invite Nancy Venord, an elder, to come join me because she's had a lot of experience in doing this, what we're going to be talking about today. So, again, Matthew chapter 18. And we're just, we've just got three verses from 15 to, uh, we'll read 15 to 18 actually. Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you've won your brother over. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established By the testimony of two or three witnesses. That's referencing an Old Testament principle. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan, that's an unbeliever, or a tax collector. I tell you the truth, whatever you bind on earth will be having been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be having been loosed in heaven. Uh, That last bit is often misunderstood to talk about anything that we declare or say in prayer. Um, Jesus does speak to that in other places where we agree with each other, but he's not here talking about prayer. Here he's talking about uh, leaders in the church making a decision Uh, in a particular matter, and how that decision would be um, uh, agreed with in heaven. 
In other words, he's vesting authority into church leaders that he's preparing at this moment to lead his new community, messianic community that he's forming. I, uh, I've got a propensity, I'm, I'm shifting gears now, for spilling on myself when I eat. Um, I'm more than most people, it feels like. Over the last number of years, well into adulthood, even up to the present, I have continued to lose valuable articles of clothing because I have dropped something on myself. But I've learned over the years, I don't lose them all anymore, I've learned that uh, if I get up right away and go soak that thing, I have a greater chance of getting that stain out because the longer you leave a stain to soak, uh, the longer, the harder it is to get it out, right? Well, what's true for clothing is true for our souls. The longer any sin is welcomed to saturate a person or a community, the harder it becomes to remove. So a splotch of hatred here, drop of slander there, a morsel of pride, a bit of greed, a little backbiting, some envy, a tad of deceit, a measure of lust, sloth, indifference, a little resentment, a little criticism, harshness, any rebellion, any unbelief, any failure to resist evil, whatever the sin, no matter the sin, it stains. Sin disrupts. God's very good design. It defiles what is beautiful and it leaves ugly marks that do not belong. So it humiliates hearts, it messes with minds, it corrupts and it disrupts callings, sin ruins relationships, it leaves a trail of misery, shame, bondage, and unfulfilled promises. And as Jesus speaks these words this morning, he's talking to a people that know that painfully well. These are a people who have a calling. They've been chosen. They've been set told by God, I'm setting you apart. You're going to be my very own people. You are my treasured possession, and you're going to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. In other words, I've called you to have and to reflect my glory and my goodness to the world. And yet here they are, just like the world. Here they are, stained by many sins, fractured into competing factions of zealots and Essenes and Pharisees and Sadducees and everybody else who's stuck in between them. They're divided. They're not pure. They are a soiled mess just like the world. And Jesus isn't going to leave them in that mess. Jesus is bringing outside help. Jesus is bringing a kingdom from heaven into this world. And he's working to form a new community. In fact, a new humanity that will actually be able to be the light of the world. Like he said in Matthew 5, you are the light of the world. He's here laying the groundwork or the foundation for that group of people to actually be light 
to the world. And though that community won't be fully birthed until this, the crucified, risen, and exalted Jesus pours out his Holy Spirit on him, he's already here preparing that community and us for a life of purity and unity, or you could say a life without stain and blemish. A little later, Jesus prays these words for all of his followers. I pray also for all those who will believe in me through their message. That all of them may be one father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave me so that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know you sent me and have loved them even as you've loved me. You notice twice Jesus says, the world will believe that he's been sent by God as a direct result of experiencing our unity, the same unity that he shares with the Father, which is what? Oneness without hindrance, a purity and a unity that is unstained by any sin whatsoever. Friends, Jesus, whose grace and whose love are immeasurable, is setting an incredibly high standard for his followers. It's kind of like he's saying this. You're being delivered from sin. You're now to hate it and you're to run from it. You're not to allow it any place in the fellowship of believers. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault, just the two of you. Now, what's really interesting is that word brother, it refers to any other follower of Jesus. So he doesn't mean just, just brothers. He means brothers, sisters. He means anybody who's a, a one of his followers. But what's really interesting is that a number of manuscripts don't have the words against you. They don't say if your brother sins against you. They just say if your brother sins. So Jesus can really be heard saying two things at once here. If someone sins against you, go and show them their fault. And if someone sins and you see it or you're aware of it, go and show them their fault. So widely speaking, Jesus is saying, deal with sin. Deal with it readily. Deal with it directly. Don't let it stain my holy bride. If someone sins against you, go and show them their fault. If someone sins, period, go and show them their fault. And then he spells out, a simple process for going alone, going with witnesses if not heard the first time, and if still not heard, bringing it before a whole local gathering of believers before finally treating the offending person as a pagan or a tax collector, which means either treat them as somebody who doesn't know God, it's the pagan, or as somebody who knew God but has turned their back on him. That's the tax collector. In any case, he's saying, if they don't respond, treat them as somebody who doesn't know me. They're not obeying me. 
theologian N.T. Wright has this, makes this comment about Jesus' simple instructions. He says, Jesus is severely practical as well as ruthlessly idealistic. Jesus is practical. He knows that even as he gives us a new heart and he deposits his spirit within us, we'll still sin. We'll still make mistakes. And we still need to be confronted by others who love us. And so he gives practical instructions for how to do this. He's practical. But Jesus is also ruthlessly idealistic. Nobody gets to call themselves his follower and carry on in sin. All of it must be dealt with. We aren't to let any of it grow up to stain our purity or our unity. And the responsibility falls to each and every one of us to participate with Jesus in naming sin and calling each other out of it. In other words, Jesus here directs us to be willing to regularly enter into hard conversations and to say difficult things. This, too, is a part of being his witnesses. This is one of the ways in which he brings restoration. In other words, we're hearing restoration actually comes through confrontation. The goal isn't confrontation. The goal isn't strife. The goal is restoration. But it comes through confrontation. And that's hard. That's really, really hard. It's hard because conflict feels vulnerable. It feels threatening to the vast majority of us. I think it's fair to say that most of us have had uh, very, very few experiences of or maybe models for healthy conflict. We've been hurt by conflict that's gone poorly. Some of us have had people disconnect from us, cancel us, reject us, however you want to say it, over disagreements, over conflict. Some of us have tried to share and just not been heard, and sometimes that's been repeatedly. Some of us have initiated and we've been shut down, perhaps even scoffed at. Some of us have endured the vent of another person's anger during conflict. We may have come in love and received anger. Some of us have, have grown up experiencing conflict as just exceedingly painful, threatening, even abusive, like witnessing parents fighting, verbally abusing one another, right? That's what you experience as conflict. That shapes you and causes you to be conflict-averse. Others of us have experienced siblings ignoring or friends just not caring as we've tried to share. Some of us have felt run over by domineering leaders. Others of us have been wounded by passive-aggressive co-workers. So I could go on and on describing ways that uh, painful experiences or poor experiences of conflict may shape our current willingness and ability to healthily enter hard conversations and to talk clearly about sin. You know, as I've pastored gold these last 13, 14 years, I would describe the ability to enter and have healthy conflict or hard conversations in a healthy manner as one of the single greatest challenges that is facing contemporary Christians. 
Jesus' instructions to us today, they're simple insofar as they're straightforward, but they're not easy. They're not easy because following them brings us into direct contact with our own degree of emotional and spiritual maturity, right? How rooted and established am I and transformed am I by the all-encompassing love of Jesus Christ, planted firm and deep and mature in it? That's what holds me steady as I enter in, right? So it brings us into contact with how uh, or the degree of emotional and spiritual maturity we've got, but it also also brings us into contact with our previous experiences of contact with of conflict, with our our fears of rejection and disconnection, and perhaps with our developed patterns of responding to conflict, like fighting or aggression, or fleeing, shutting down, freezing. Right? You've, we've we've all heard of like fight, flight, or freeze as sort of prototypical responses that people have. None of them are healthy. We all have a tendency. None of them are healthy. None of them help us enter in, stay present, keep our love on, and have hard conversations. And so honestly, uh, some, maybe most, even all of us, I think ignore or over, maybe ignore would be strong, but overlook Jesus' instructions at, at times. I think, I think we often avoid these conversations like the plague. Maybe even pretending that we're being peacemakers and peace maintainers by not addressing sin. Maybe saying things to ourselves like, it's not my role to judge. I shouldn't meddle. Or perhaps we tell ourselves, love covers over a multitude of sins, right? And so I shouldn't say anything. Yet that scripture means... Love forgives, not that it ignores, not that it fails to address something that's real and deadly. So first we need to just say to ourselves, believing that our relationships can flourish and our witness can carry on healthy while ignoring conversations about sin is kind of like believing mold will stop spreading and weeds will stop growing if we just leave them alone. If I just look the other way, somebody else will spray them. Refusing to speak about sin is like allowing it to spread like a cancer in whatever relationship or community exists. And so Jesus gives this command to do for others what he has already done for us. Watch what Jesus has done. He's confronted us with the truth about our sins against him. And he's done it in the most amazing manner. He's not rejected us. He has not disconnected from us. He has not come in anger. He has not come shaming. He's not come condemning. Instead, he made atonement for our sins before he even confronted us with them. The issue of forgiveness was already settled. And then he confronted us. This is the heart of the gospel, that God doesn't disconnect, but rather he comes to us and he's honest about what's killing us, even as he offers forgiveness and calls us into new life. And he never backs down on either front. 
He never stops being gracious and merciful. And as long as we're living and breathing, he's open and calling. But he never changes his standard. He will not change his mind on what is sin and what isn't. He will not change his mind on the holiness that he calls for, the purity that he wants, the stains and the wrinkles that he wants gone. He keeps calling us out with love. And he calls us to follow that same path and to offer that same grace to one another, to other believers, wherever they may be. And so as we um, step into a deeper obedience to Jesus' restoration through conflict, I want to close this part by offering five simple biblical principles that I think will help us as we step in to obeying Jesus. And all of these we see in Jesus. Number one, be available. John 20, 22, Jesus says, As the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. In the same way, right? Just as Jesus was available to come from heaven, to leave glory and to come as a minister of reconciliation. And who can imagine just how difficult it was for him to dwell among such brokenness with such high standards. He's the author, the creator of life. He knows what he intended. And every moment he ministered, he was confronted with the opposite of that. Think about the patience that it took on his part. And yet he was available to come and not constantly to point at that, but to point to the forgiveness and the reconciliation that are possible, the restoration as we repent, right? Just calling people back to God. He's available. So if your brother or sister sins against you, the first word is go and show him or her their fault. Not if your brother or sister sins and it really bothers you. Not if your brother or sister sins and you feel comfortable confronting them. Not if they sin and you think they'll be opening to listening to you well. If they sin, go. Be available for God to use at inconvenient times, in inconvenient, uncomfortable situations. Go in obedience to God. Go out of love for the person who needs freedom. Be available to the Father as Jesus was. Two, forgive before you go. Fully forgive first. John 3.17 says, God didn't send his son into the world to condemn, but to save the world through him. Even though God has every reason to be angry and offended, he didn't come. He had that, right? We see that. He clearly models for us that he has that anger. It's okay to have it. But he doesn't come in it. God's desire to reconcile and save required him to forgive us before coming to us. Now, you may have a legitimate reason to be hurt, angry, or offended with somebody you're confronting. But if you speak out of that hurt, anger, and offense, you'll just further alienate the person you're trying to reach. And honestly, this is where most confrontations that I'm a part of or see break down. Because what I often witness is we've forgiven in part, but not in full. We've spoken words, but we haven't accessed maybe the depth of the pain or the impact something's had on us. And um, when we get into the situation, up comes the resentment. The, we really still want to squeeze an apology out of a person. We want to squeeze right behavior out of them. We want 
you know, because we still have something we, we feel like we're owed. We need to get. And we've got to reach the place. If our goal is to win them back, we've got to reach the place first where all of our forgiveness work is done. And that, that doesn't just go if somebody sinned against you personally. That also goes when you're going to confront someone of a sin that doesn't have anything to do with you. Because it's very easy to get offended with a person for that. For any number of reasons. Because you can see the impact of that sin and be very offended with the hurt or the inconvenience or the mess or whatever it is. You just ask any parent who's disciplining one child for what they did to another child. How easy it is to get. I can't tell you how many times I've had to apologize because I got offended. And then my own anger got in the way of actually disciplining in love, right? So my kids can tell you that. They're very gracious. A heart free of anger, resentment, bitterness, or judgment is required for confronting others well. And so don't be ashamed to ask over and over, Father, give me your compassion for this person. And just pray until you can feel your heart come into alignment with God's love for them. And then you're ready to talk. So be available, forgive first, three, be humble and unassuming. Ephesians 4.2 says, be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. Unlike Jesus, we rarely have the full picture, and we certainly don't know what's in another person's heart. And so we just got to be really careful to speak in ways that demonstrate we're bringing something as best as we can see or understand or saw it or heard it, but with humility. We don't have the full picture. That being said, let me move to number four and, at this, and partner, partner with humility. Be clear and gently direct. Humility does not equal timidity, and we don't help anybody by being vague or ambiguous or um, beating around a bush. And so as best as we're able, we want to clearly name and perhaps even practice ahead what we'll say when we're going to confront someone. So I'll just give you a few examples. You might say, when, when you spoke about so-and-so in their absence, you were demeaning or it felt demeaning, and I experienced your words as slander. When you pressure me to vape or to do drugs with you, you're asking me to harm my body, to sin against God. When you made those jokes about such and such politician, you were blatantly disrespecting someone that God's called us to pray for. When you repeatedly told me you would do this, but you didn't do it, I felt lied to and my trust was broken. Some of the things that I see you post on Facebook are really inconsistent with the attitudes that Jesus calls for in his followers. I repeatedly hear you making statements that seem to be based in fear and anxiety, not in faith in God and his word, and your speech is having an impact on people around you. I've seen a shift take place in you over the last one to two years. You seem far more concerned with fitting into this world than you do with loving Jesus Christ and his kingdom. Each of the, and you would give concrete examples, but each of those is clear, it's direct, and you would speak them with humility as somebody who has also experienced struggles with sin, right? So we're available, we've forgiven first, we're humble and unassuming, but we're also clear and gently direct. And then finally, number five, be persistent. The most uncomfortable part of Jesus' instructions 
is perhaps not the command to go once by ourselves, though it often takes up much mustering and prayer for for courage for many of us, I know, to go. But the command to keep going if we don't win a person over to repentance. These commands that Jesus gives here are so countercultural and so uncomfortable. I know we don't want to re-enter a context of conflict where we haven't been heard. We don't want to bring others in or even the local church. It can feel anything from vulnerable to messy to possibly even unnecessary. You know, we could just try hard to get over it or to bury it or there's all kinds of things we say to ourselves to sort of not escalate it. But even if we're willing to, God doesn't want that. He doesn't want that because he wants restoration. And restoration requires the removal of things that are staining, that are defiling, that are breaking down relationships, that are breaking down unity. He doesn't want any compromise with evil. He wants a pure and a holy bride. He wants a reconciled family that can experience true, deep unity. And he wants a body that can give witness to the world about the presence and the power of Jesus Christ to transform. And so if we persist, or as we persist in confronting sin, out of love for Jesus and love for people, we will see relationships restored. But we may also see people respond poorly to our humble confronting. I think Jesus makes that clear. He indicates it. He anticipates it, right? And though it's painful to have to treat somebody as an unbeliever, it actually helps to maintain our clear witness to the world that Jesus does transform Jesus does restore. Jesus does bring unity and purity and peace. And this is Jesus' body that's experiencing it. This person, they may claim. But you can tell by the lack of those things, they're not actually a part of the body. And so there's a need to be clear, to differentiate. Where is Jesus' body? How is Jesus at work? What does Jesus do and what's not, right? I can feel, um, I can feel nobody's jumping out of their seat, like chomping at the bit going, let me at this work. Like this sounds so exciting. I just want to name that. I'll go back to it isn't easy. It doesn't get easier. Just because I preached on it. I'm not promising easy. Jesus, what, what did we hear last week from Anne? Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow me. It's a narrow road, right? But it doesn't have to be heavy. It doesn't have to be heavy. Because where did we start this morning? I am with you. I surround you. Whatever need you have, I have provision. There's not a situation that you can enter into or go through that I will not resource you for. There's not a need you have that I can't and won't fill as you keep coming to me. Okay? 
Let me stop there and just turn us toward a little bit of questions and conversation.